0: and welcome to Facebook Live. I'm your director, John Zerflu, and it's our town hall. We're back together here on June 24th, and I have a special guest with me, but first a greeting to all of our Facebook Live viewers who are slowly coming online. We've got about 17 of you so far in the room. We've also admitted a couple of guests into the Zoom room. You're welcome to join us over there as well. But do be aware that there's a lag in time between what's live on the Zoom call and what you might find on the Facebook page. And please be sure not to be playing the Facebook page in the background if you do join us in the Zoom room. Um, I'm going to bring uh, Dr. Olishuk in and ask him to start up with us. Um, Dr. Olashuk is representing Epicspert, which is the company that we partnered with recently. Uh, to start our process of getting ready for August, which we're fully engaged in right now, after having worked with uh, team members from EPIXpert and uh, certainly uh, Dr. Olashuk most closely in recent days, as we start to lay out the framework for the more detailed planning that will come during the month of July. But in parallel with that, I also will mention that there are many facility-related projects that Mr. Young and his team are working with expert on to make sure we get those pieces in place as well. But uh, Dollar, Dr. Olszak, thank you for joining us tonight. It's a pleasure to have you on Facebook Live with us. Well,
1: thank you so much for the invite, uh, John. And uh, it's a great pleasure to uh, to be with you guys. And, uh, you know, I, I have always had great admiration for the American School and uh, for, what, uh, for what you have been doing over the past couple of decades. Uh, and... Uh, uh, I have three kids myself of school age so the, the topic of uh, uh, coming back to school and the topic of online learning and the pains of online learning are very close to my heart and the whole family here so uh, so extremely happy and honored to uh, be working with uh, uh, John and his team on uh, preparing this school for August for all of you to uh, come back safely so I will share my screen and share with you a few slides uh, if um, you allow uh, go ahead <laughs> thank you um, so i have uh, a couple of points on my agenda it should not be long maybe 15 20 minutes and then there will be an opportunity to uh, to ask me questions if you have any um, so uh, a, a couple of points so first uh, i will talk about a bit about the ep- epidemiology uh, so the, the, the question that i get a lot is will we have a second wave Um, The second topic would be about testing, you know, there's so much uh, about testing in the media and uh, so many wrong things about testing in the the media, so I just want to to, uh, demystify a bit the testing. Um, The third point, uh, you know, a lot of people are saying, oh, I don't care about COVID, I'm young, I'm healthy, I will not get it. So I will try and uh, share some um, very recent uh, publications on COVID in younger people and why we should care. We all should care. Uh, then talk a few words about schools and are schools really safe or unsafe? Because uh, you know, all the governments around the world were really quick to lock down all the schools and prevent the kids from uh, having the normal environment for learning. But was it really the right uh, decision? Uh, and then again, open for uh, for Q and A. Um, so, uh, will we have a second wave? Well. It seems that we may have a second wave. So there are many different models, as you can imagine, and uh, everybody's saying, oh, there will be a second wave. Now there is a second wave. Now there will be a second wave in uh, in, uh, the autumn. Uh, I I will show some data in a sec, but I I have some good news and some bad news about COVID in general. So first of all, COVID will stay most likely for some time. Uh, The good news is that there will be a vaccine, and even uh, maybe even in 2020, meaning, It will be um, made available, uh, or at least it will be uh, made available to be commercialized. Uh, Will it be available to us? Uh, Probably not. Uh, The manufacturing and the distribution of uh, such a product to 220 countries around the world and providing 7 billion doses potentially, uh, 14 billion doses because potentially we may be needing two doses at at the first vaccination. And uh, unfortunately, the bad news is that it will likely not provide 100% protection because most of the trials, if not all, are powered to show 70% effectiveness. So 70%, meaning that 70% of people who are immunized or vaccinated uh, respond. Um, uh, Now, this model is an interesting one. It comes from a study in the UK uh, but covers the whole of uh, Europe. It's based on the modeling, but also on real mobility data from Google and from Vodafone in the UK. And it shows uh, the potential second wave if all the restrictions uh, are lifted and the time uh, that it will take to the second wave. So you can see uh, that's the one that's the second one here. And uh, it seems that the second wave may be, uh, uh, may be even stronger than the first wave. So this is just, just just a simulation, you can say. Here are real data uh, you know, from this uh, uh, COVID tracker. And obviously, there is a lot of talk in, in the US. Uh, and potentially, there is already a mini second wave. South America is booming, unfortunately. It's still the first wave, probably, in South America. There are a few outbreaks here and there in Germany. Um, China has had a recent, uh, a, a recent resurgence. When we look at the US, uh, it seems that some states are dealing with it better, uh, maybe the Northeast, maybe the Northwest. The southern states, uh, not so good. So, Florida, Arizona. It seems that people, you know, after many months of lockdown, they wanted to get back to the beach, and, uh, and that's uh, potentially a, a consequence of uh, all these people squeezing in the beaches of Florida. Uh, South Carolina, Carolina Oklahoma, uh, probably experiencing uh, second peaks and very, very alarming. Uh, data from these states. Uh, fortunately, this has not uh, been associated with increased deaths. Uh, so does it mean that more young people are uh, getting sick maybe? Uh, there's usually the, the death curve usually lags the case curve uh, because uh, the, obviously deaths occur uh, much later than uh, than diagnosis. Uh, so let's see, let's hope, let's hope the deaths uh, remain low uh, and not uh, mirror this, uh, this red line here. <clears throat> now, some words about testing. Uh, is it important? Well, it seems that it is important because it seems that countries that have uh, implemented aggressive testing policies early on, so here on the left-hand side, Iceland, Bahrain, Lithuania, Qatar, Israel, Estonia, New Zealand, they have managed to uh, keep the death rate very low okay so here it's an interesting comparison not very uh, obvious one but uh, on the x axis you just have the deaths on the y axis you have tests and obviously uh, the italian case shows uh, that uh, that their testing policy uh, was lagging in the cases and hence the high mortality rates UK same US unfortunately same as well so uh, again testing seems to be important uh, in terms of preventing deaths so from my perspective as a physician i would say that's uh, pretty solid evidence for testing obviously how you test what you test when you test who to who you test why you test is a is a is a big uh, media show and politicians are coming out you know with these uh, miracle tests that show you in 10 minutes that you have COVID or not and cost $10. Uh, and nobody knows what they're talking about in, uh, in truth. I will not go into details. Uh, the, the point is, the, the, the testing is, uh, you know, like in all medical testing, first of all, we have to remember that no test is 100%. Okay, so uh, there are uh, 160, 180 million diabetics around the world who use glucometers Okay, every day. To take life and death decisions about uh, their insulin dose. Okay, life and death decisions because a wrong dose may mean um, hypoglycemia uh, and risk of death. And these glucometers uh, are—they are powered to show plus minus 15% accurate results. Okay, plus minus 15% means. I can be 100 on one glucometer, 130 on the other glucometer, and it's fine. It's within the, the approved uh, limits. And again, I will take a life and that decision for, because of this. So uh, here also with COVID, no test is 100% uh, full proof. There is no 100% sensitive test, no 100% specific test, and that's, uh, that's obvious. Uh, what we have is three different types of tests. The PCR tests, which are used to confirm symptomatic cases basically that's the that's the approach and uh, uh, this is because they are long in terms of waiting time they're quite expensive they require centralization Um, uh, so they're limited to uh, confirming those uh, cases that uh, are potential or suspected cases then we have the antibody test the rapid tests that detect antibodies against covid and they are uh, relatively uh, lower specificity and sensitivity than uh, PCR tests, but they're used to, uh, in epidemiological studies, to show whether people has, have had exposure to the virus in the past by detecting potentially the IgG antibody, so the, the immunity uh, antibodies. They're not used to confirm whether somebody has, uh, has COVID now. The, 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 the use case for the RDTs, for the antibody tests, is to uh, confirm or not whether somebody has had exposure. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm purposefully using this term rather than saying uh, somebody who has immunity because we actually don't understand enough to say whether somebody has immunity after having had COVID-19 um, and how long this immunity, potential immunity, lasts. And then the third type of test is an antigen test. antigen test. So it also detects the virus. Uh, it's a point-of-care test, so it's a rapid detection test, uh, detection test. It can be used in a decentralized fashion, so it does not require a lab. Um, and uh, it's relatively uh, it's lower specificity and sensitivity than the PCR test, but has the potential to uh, detect viral, viral vi- uh, virus particles in people who are even pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic. So uh, quite important, and they obviously uh, are. There are many antigen tests in development because they show the promise of having a decentralised way of uh, mass uh, screening uh, the population. Now, a few words whether we should care about COVID, you know, and uh, uh, and whether it's uh, an important disease for everybody, whether we should be afraid or not. Well, so uh, the, there are more and more good studies, uh, and obviously the, the kind of the prevailing knowledge is that this is the, uh, the, the the disease which is most severe for older people and for people with some uh, coexisting uh, health issues, okay, like uh, heart disease, like diabetes, like obesity. Um, now, what is uh, what is uh, what was still unknown uh, is how many of the infections are truly asymptomatic. And there is now more and more evidence from many studies around the world. This is just one from Italy, uh, a very, very good one, very large study, which shows in different age categories and uh, uh, genders, uh, the percentage of symptomatic cases, okay? So these color bars show the symptomatic cases. So you can appreciate that Among the kids, so less than 19 year olds, only 15 to 20 percent of cases were symptomatic, means 85 percent 80 to 85 percent were asymptomatic. Okay, in the 20 to 39 category, 20 to 25 percent were symptomatic, means 75 to 80 percent were asymptomatic. Uh, etc and obviously the the gray bars within the bars are the critical cases so you can appreciate that in the 0 to 19 category uh, there were basically none and and truly the, the 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 course of the disease in younger patients is relatively mild at maximum moderate so the message the take-home message is many cases up to three-fourths up to 75 percent are asymptomatic now you will ask okay but do asymptomatic carriers actually shed the virus so do they actually infect others because that's a common question and uh, uh the answer is yes okay so uh, there, there's a study uh, from uh, japan uh, a recent one not yet published uh, will be published in september in the emerging infectious disease journal which analyzed uh close to 40 outbreaks in Japan in the first uh, four months of the year. And uh, they have shown that more than 80% of viral transmissions occurred before or on the first day of symptoms. So this is a very good study, which uh, actually tested everybody, which did the contact tracing, et cetera. So more than 80% of the transmissions of the infections occurred in people who were pre-symptomatic or on the first day of symptoms. The Second take-home message is 50%, half of the outbreaks originated from younger people, 20 to 40 year olds. Okay, so and it's it's well also quite logical because the younger people are kind of more mobile, they're moving around, they're meeting, etc. And then the other take-home message, I know restaurants are open, gyms are open, concerts are open, uh football games are open, but 75% of the outbreak. Uh, outbreaks occurred in bars, restaurants, gyms, and concerts. Okay, So if you guys like to get exposed, these are probably good places to be. Uh, but again, probably not the, smartest, uh, not the smartest thing to do, and I will show you why asymptomatic people unfortunately may have consequences of the virus infection as well. Now, there's also an interesting study out of Italy, uh, and uh, there's one table out of this study in the bottom which shows uh well, which shows uh, in in uh, quantifiable terms the amount of viral shedding that asymptomatic people uh, experience uh, so uh, uh, during regular activity okay so basically they tested uh, about a hundred asymptomatic uh, subjects with confirmed pcr with confirmed qualitative PCR showing uh, that they had a significant number of uh, copies of the virus and they defined this uh, interesting uh, uh, this interesting unit which I called quantum okay so a quantum of the virus uh, one quantum has the ability to infect about 65% of people who you're having close contact with one quantum of the virus Okay, so close contact is still more than 10 minutes, less than two meters with no uh, personal protection. So that's a quantum. So a quantum may contain many hundreds of viruses, but that's a quantum, okay? And uh, you see here, when we are breathing at rest, we, uh, uh, we uh, breathe out 10 quanta per hour, okay? Just sitting and breathing 10 quanta per hour. Okay, when we speak like I do now, if you were around me and I had COVID, asymptomatic COVID, I would be shedding 320 quanta. Remember, one quantum is enough to infect two-thirds of you, not via Zoom, but in person. So, and while I'm speaking, it's 320 quanta per hour. Now, if I were exercising, that's why the gyms are so dangerous, I would be shedding 1,000 quanta per hour. Uh, so exercising and speaking, and a lot of guys, a lot of people do it in the gyms. You know, it's a very social atmosphere. Uh, <clears throat> so, uh, so, so asymptomatic carriers. Uh, there's not only epidemiological evidence, but there's actually real kind of biologic, you know, quantifiable evidence that shows that they actually shed the virus. Now, I was saying, uh, you know, okay, so do I, sh- I shed virus? Okay, I'm dangerous to others, uh, but so what, you know? I will be fine. Well, it seems, unfortunately, that asymptomatic uh, people also develop pulmonary changes similar to the symptomatic ones. Okay, So these are CT scans, uh, so computed tomography scans, of lungs of asymptomatic people with COVID-19, with confirmed COVID by PCR. And they have uh, a very characteristic, pointed by the red arrows, ground glass pattern in their lungs. which signify this pneumonia-like changes in the architecture of the lung tissue, which means that basically, even though you're asymptomatic, you develop very similar cellular changes in your uh, cellular uh, and uh, in your mucosa of your lungs. And these changes may actually have long-lasting impact on your lung function, because there is also evidence that there is fibrosis in the lungs of these patients. So it doesn't really make sense to get infected, uh, even if you're young. So I'm I'm seeing now on the streets, you know, people are really, I mean, there's a a lot of people not wearing masks because we don't have to wear masks, because it's a political decision, obviously not to wear masks. Uh, And it's fine because outdoors it's relatively safe, but still even in the stores, uh, and I rarely go to stores like, twice a week I count and I really spend very little time in the store always wearing my mask I still see people without the mask okay uh, so uh, so it's not worth to get infected it's really worth to protect yourself because not only you're dangerous to others without knowing it but you're actually dangerous to your own lungs so uh, you know some states I mean, actually most states are actually requiring now this daily symptom checker for all people actually going to work like every day they have to fill out this little thing Uh, i don't know what they do with these sheets of paper to be honest but uh, apparently they have to they have to like uh, employees have to fill out this uh, screen checker and i think it's actually a pretty good thing because because this health screening is uh, is a one of the key components of a good npis so non-pharmacological intervention uh, strategy for COVID. Obviously, you have to follow it with something more because it's not only about symptoms. We just were talking about asymptomatic or presymptomatic carriers, so it is about behaviors. Okay, and I was talking about bars, restaurants, etc. But here is a nice study from China, co-published by Chinese and American uh, scientists, uh, also from the US CDC, and uh, they looked at uh, 1,000. Uh, People who uh, contracted the first SARS virus during the first SARS epidemic in China in 2004. Okay, the first SARS. Again, the first SARS, the second SARS, very similar in terms of transmission rates. So they look at 1,000 people who got the SARS virus without having a contact with a known case. Like for sure, they knew they didn't have a contact. Okay, it was and it was checked and it was tested. So here are the risk factors for them. So visiting an infectious hospital in their uh, speak, it's the, uh, how do you call it? The fever center, okay? So they had these fever centers. So people with fever could come in, walk in and kind of get advice. So visiting a fever center uh, increased the risk of contracting SARS 12 times, okay? By 12 times. One meal in a restaurant, sorry, restaurants, restaurant in a week increased your risk of contracting SARS three times, 300%. One taxi ride in a week, 300%. One bus ride, 280%. So we can start appreciating that these are not small numbers. And the first SARS, let me remind you, the numbers were like 1,000 times less than the current SARS epidemic. So the prevalence of this uh, SARS, the first SARS, was extremely, extremely low. And still, people had such high risk of getting infected while being in these spaces. On the other hand frequent hand washing and wearing a mask all the time significantly reduced the uh, the risk so it is about all of us being responsible for us and and others around us you know it's 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 a joint it's a joint phenomenon we it's it's not like i am young and i don't care uh, because uh, first of all i do care because uh, even if i'm will not be very sick uh, I will have changes in my lungs. So we have to take accountability for everyday actions and really change the behaviors. And we have this concept of these safe bubbles. You know, We have to create safe bubbles around ourselves. And our home, our neighbors should be the safe bubble. The school should be the safe bubble. And this our aim um, to help uh, John and Jim and the leadership of uh, American School of Warsaw to create the safe bubble in school. Now, the... Uh, the uh, you know, I'm, I, I really uh, admire my one of my ex-employers, McKinsey, uh, and they really put this nice uh, set of uh, set of recommendations for businesses who are kind of returning after the COVID lockdown. And it's a nice uh, two by two matrix which uh, shows the different businesses, uh, different sectors, uh, and stratifies them by uh, the uh, risk driven by proximity of exposure and extent of exposure okay it's very simple in a way but in the end this is what it is it's how close you have contact with somebody and with how many people you are contacting yourself with over a period of time and schools are here you know it's this little three here so it's relatively uh, uh in the they're kind of in the middle you know so kind of mid proximity of exposure so relatively high, I would say, proximity of exposure. And the extent of exposure is relatively low, because you have, you, you really meet with the same people. Uh, so it's not like random people every day, but you really meet with the same people every day. So this is how they kind of see uh, the level of risk in these large confined spaces. So pre-entry is relatively low risk, and then travel higher to networks. This is more business-oriented, obviously. So they look at it if from, you know, it's, it's a large group, as you saw here, of businesses which fall into this category. But, uh, uh, but uh, in terms of schools specifically, there is very little data in a way, you know. And again, the schools were, you know, politicians were very eager to show that they're doing something, so they closed schools, and that was a, an easy one, unfortunately. So uh, there is this nice... Uh, and again, I, I found very few good evidence-based studies from uh, school environments. But the study from Australia uh, actually shows uh, fifteen different outbreaks that uh, happened in schools. Okay, uh, and you see here, you know, like student by student and staff by staff. So the green uh, little guys are students. The blue guys are staff. The circled uh, green guys are cases, and the circled blue guys are staff cases. And the reds are secondary cases. Okay? So these are the guys who actually got infected by being in school with these guys here, okay, with the cases. So you see, out of almost 900 students, only actually two got infected as a secondary case from these primary cases. So these primary cases got infected somewhere else in the community. They brought it to the school and they infected only a couple uh, secondary cases so it seems that schools somehow are uh, anyway a relatively safe environment obviously obviously uh, it depends huh? because um, you see here and even though these were students Obviously, we have to protect both the students and the staff. The staff are also quite uh, at, at higher risk because they fall into the uh, uh, rather older uh, categories than the students. Uh, and it seems that, again, in schools, uh, you know, this, the extent of uh, exposure and the proximity of exposure is low enough. Uh, to not uh, have uh, such outbreaks and and really when we hear about those outbreaks uh, in schools, even in recent couple of weeks, there were three outbreaks in uh, preschools in Warsaw and uh, uh, and really there was only, I think, one case. uh, There was no secondary student case, but there was one case of a child of a pupil that uh, that uh, brought the virus from home, actually from the parents. So uh, still uh, uh, you know John and the team are uh, thinking how best to protect uh, the school environment uh, for you guys to feel safe, and we are uh, you know looking at various best practices from around the world, and the types of things that we're looking at are you know the health screening approach uh, whether it 's the temperature screening or the daily symptom check uh, uh, this is something that uh, you know we are discussing potentially de-densifying classrooms somehow uh, you know as simple as opening windows and we were discussing this you know probably in the summer uh, kind of uh, early autumn times possible uh, but opening windows really works and uh, and there are cases of this ppes you know uh, and again especially probably for for the staff uh, relatively uh, i think large events uh, know, probably uh, difficult to handle. Uh, We are discussing also how to uh, implement a testing protocol that would really be uh, providing, uh, you know, almost 100% uh, foolproof kind of sieve, uh, you know, to to, uh, tweak out those cases, those active cases. And there are cases around the world. In Germany, for example, in some schools, all students are actually tested uh, weekly or even twice a week with PCR tests. Uh, Some of them are using pooled testing. uh, Some of them are using antigen tests. Uh, So we are discussing how to potentially develop a protocol, uh, again, to make sure that whoever enters the school is not just screened for temperature and uh, symptoms and uh, kind of risk profile, uh, but also um, the, uh, the actual virus. And again, we are looking at various infrastructure updates that we can, uh, that we can include uh, entry-exit protocols, circulation patterns, you know, how do we manage the sports facility, again, events, guests, suppliers, parents. Uh, and uh, you know, again, our, our main goal is to make the American School of Warsaw a safe bubble where your kids can feel as safe as can possibly be uh and and again I'm uh, I'm uh, having a very similar uh, service for uh, the school where my kids are going and uh, we're doing a very very similar approach with this school because I want my kids to feel as safe as possible obviously and again the main aim that uh, John gave me or uh, the main task that John gave me at the beginning of the collaboration is to ensure the continuity of in-school tuition for as, as much as possible, barring you know any kind of uh, major governmental lockdown uh, mandates, while preserving most, if not all, of the key learning and cultural aspects of the school. So we don't want to completely destroy what you guys have built over the last many, many, many years and what John has built with his leadership team um, and we want to really make sure that we uh, do as much as possible, which uh, you will not notice. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you will feel that your kids are in a safe place. Thank you. And uh, I will welcome your questions now, if you have any. I don't know how it works, John, so let me. Well, I've got the
0: questions. And oh, you know. I'm going I'm to push them forward to you as we go here. I'm going to go back earlier because they've been entering them as we've gone along. Um, one of the things um, that it, uh, back earlier in the chain uh, from Mr. McKinty was um, going back early was this uh, lower death rates for countries that are adopting testing is and I'm assuming just based on what you showed in the last couple of slides that that's transferable to the school setting as well, that the, the more and the best methodology we can come up with for testing that we do have The ability to lower, obviously, the exposure rate, reduce the potential for a cross exposure, Uh, but even that, even that, that that's not that prevalent. So we're really shaving off that ten percent that's sitting at the top, right?
1: Absolutely, and that's. uh, I think that's a critical point you're making, uh, John, because, you know, obviously, as uh, you know, a school is kind of like a mini country, you know, and especially now that you will be returning to school in August. Uh, So it's kind of a a restart, you know, a a reset. Mm -hmm. And uh, you you, you can treat it as kind of, you know, a new opening. And uh, whatever we start doing from the beginning will have immediate impact. Like we said, like we saw in Iceland, like we saw in Bahrain, like we saw in Qatar, uh, where, you know, they immediately reacted with, you know, 1,000 times more tests per capita than in uh, the developed European markets. 1,000 times more. Uh, and, uh, I mean, some countries, they test like everybody.
0: Right, exactly. And we've seen right. examples, right, in how yeah. they've beaten the curve, right?
1: How they, and they beat the curve. And, and that's really possible in the school environment. But again, you have to remember, guys, that uh, the school is just part of your life. Okay? Right. As much as we can provide a safe environment within this bubble, uh, it's up to you to provide the similarly safe environment in the other bubbles that the kids are at. You know, so home, friends, uh, McDonald's, whatever. I mean, uh,
0: this was, was, we talked about this as being part of the fallacy behind um, the reduction of group sizes or somehow shifting that that doesn't really help us that much because the mixing that occurs outside of school pretty much negates that. Exactly, exactly. So that's why we have to you know we
1: really have to uh, be be mindful i mean it's you know it's as simple as that and uh, you know it's uh, there's this uh, this recent study which uh, uh, followed uh, i think about 25000 people in uh, in the uk who are adhering to uh, these uh, they had this website and they were kind of it's an educational website where they could see you know what to do what not to do what to avoid what to do more of uh, to protect themselves from infection and uh, the 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 level of uh, infection was like 80 percent lower than in the peer group which did not follow this wow so so this is quite uh, significant you know and uh, obviously there's small numbers but still you know quite statistically significant certainly and certainly practically uh, pragmatically significant so um, So again, you know, we we will be doing everything possible uh, to make the school and to make your kids feel safe and to make you feel safe. And you have to do the same outside of school.
0: And that becomes back to that circle of trust concept, right, is that it's not just about what we do in school, but we'll need families to participate in a program of methodologies that are about assessing risk. Before kids come to school and assuring that we're all working on this together,
1: Yes, exactly. And again, as much as possible, you know if we manage to uh, develop for you guys a testing protocol, it mm-hmm. still will not be a testing protocol that will be daily testing because it's impractical. right uh, But if we s- somehow find a, a you know a, a golden standard, but still there will be lags. So the, the, you know it's a it's a joint responsibility for all of us. Uh, And again, it it requires different behaviors. You know, I had (laughs) I had a webinar for another client of mine uh, who leads a a very large, uh, very large law firm here in Warsaw, a a multinational law firm. And uh, he said he was invited to the 50th anniversary of one of his uh, most important customers today. 80 people invited, etc. He said, "I'm not going." Exactly, because of that reason, you know, and he's my most important, and I should probably go in, even if for 20 minutes just to talk to him and wish him happy birthday, but I'm not going because I know that this is risky behavior.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure there's lots of people in our community that are trying to assess those one by one, and of course, I know the toughest population uh, that everybody's struggling with is um, the high schoolers, the middle schoolers yeah. and high schoolers, who have earned a degree of of freedom typically at this age. And and that's hard to balance that against uh, the potential risks. As you're pointing out, we really don't know what all these risks are of this this virus getting into us that may not cause pain initially and may not cause a lot of symptomology, but may have a staying power that we as yet don't really understand. Absolutely. So I think better be safe uh, because again, uh, it's, 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 and
1: it's relatively easy. Huh? It's, it's not like we're saying you have to lock yourself down in a right. nuclear shelter for the next six months without food. Uh, so th- there are simple ways. And again, the three ways that are quite simple is wear your mask, uh, wash your hands frequently, and distance social, pre- preserve social distance. And that's really, you know, it's 80% of what you can do to reduce your risk. And that's our 90%. So. <laughs>
0: now, all that being said, one of the questions that came up was about mask wearing. And of course, everybody's concerned about having kids wear masks a yeah. significant amount of the time. Um, I think we've only suggested, and, and of course, I, and I'll hasten to mention for everybody that the final audit report is not done yet you guys are still working on the on the finer details and points of this but do you want to talk about wa- mask wearing i think it's related also to that data of kid to kid transmission that's not really our issue so much exactly and i i would uh, i think at this stage at least
1: before we know more but based on the current best knowledge that we have worldwide uh, and I, have, and I have pressure tested this recommendation with my partners in, uh, at Harvard and Johns Hopkins. Uh, the, uh, the recommendation would be that staff wear masks mm-hmm. and kids don't wear masks. Okay. Got it. So we will be, uh, and again, until further notice, I, I think this would be uh, weighing the benefits and risks uh, in, the, in the correct fashion. Again, the risks are very slow of kid-to-kid transmission. Uh, So uh, if there is transmission is kid to adult or adult to kid. So I would say uh, uh, bearing this in mind and accepting some level of risk, uh, I would say it's it's worth it because it is minimal. And uh, that's number one. And number two, if we do have a a proper testing protocol, then we will uh, certainly be able to see you know 99.9 percent of potential uh suspected cases uh so that that that, that would be easier than again wearing a mask. i mean it's so impractical because they would have to take off the mask anyway for some of the activities okay. so and it's all or none huh? it's not like you can you know you can be half pregnant it's all or none uh, so the practical recommendation would be for staff to wear masks
0: Right. So we really look at the staff and particularly our itinerant staff, which we've talked about a little bit in terms of protecting them to a greater degree. There's lots of other subtleties this plan that include cohort control, the testing, all these things go hand in hand. It's a it's a woven fabric of protective strategies to get us to where we need to be on the risk level and making sure that we keep everybody informed about what those various components are and what it is that we're doing. And also, you know, I, I do have
1: to mention that, I mean, one of, the, one of the things that we will also prepare is a crisis procedure uh, right. is validated. Because, again, it, there, there is no method that will guarantee 100% uh, what, uh, that, you know, there is 100% guarantee. So there may be cases, and the point is that if you have a good procedure, then you, you, you will reduce significantly your risk of closing the entire school. Uh, but really having, you know, a very spotted uh, kind of spot check uh, and mm-hmm. making sure that uh, you trace the contacts quickly, etc. So so that is uh, an important part because, and it's better to have it, it's better to test it a couple of times, uh, because when it happens, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's good to kind of go line by line rather than thinking, oh my God, what do do now? Yeah.
0: I'm just going to reassure Mario here asking about opening on schedule. Yes, we're still planning to open on schedule on yeah. August 18th. Um, I think we talked a little bit too about how we're hoping that our protocols are actually going to be vetted and approved through channels so that we have this ability to um, do that in in the way that we expect and knowing that we're kind of ramping up to a level above or actually demonstrating to others what should be the protocol and kind of lifting above those uh, political ramifications that you spoke to a couple of times. Yes, that's the and that's the objective is
1: to really create a, a, an absolute worldwide best practice uh, approach, <laughs> and uh, and uh, show that, that that this is really you know the way to provide for all schools around the world for all the 1.5 billion kids uh, around the world who were you know prevented normal schooling. I mean, I, I almost felt like you know our kids are kind of in the same situation as our. You know, grandparents or parents were during the World War Two. You know, I mean, they didn't have uh, schools, and our kids also. I mean, it's it's terrible what they had mm-hmm. to experience, and uh, <laughs> so you know, we, we really have to protect schools, and uh, we have to find a, a much better way than you know the the, the, the plain old uh, middle medieval uh, lockdown. Uh, and there is a better way, and we will develop and we will launch it. And uh, I hope. Uh, very well appreciate it and, uh, and see that this is something that provides uh, A, safety, B, uh, you know, health security, and C, uh, you know, has the school open mm-hmm. throughout all time.
0: Um, Heike is asking about uh, practicality for teachers wearing masks. Do you have any sense of that with others that you've been working with and whether they've been able to adopt those practices and make it work? It's, you know, again, you have to learn.
1: It's a new thing. Uh, I, 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 we never had any complaints. I mean, in the, in the school where my kids go, uh, the teachers wear masks and, uh, and uh, I, I never had any, heard any complaints.
0: Great. And then um, Nina asked a follow-up on what does the classroom density mean? So what kinds of things are you thinking about there? And is that one that's high on the list, or is that one that may also be mediated by these other strategies? You said, if possible. If possible possible and if needed. Again, the objective would be to not de-densify at all uh,
1: and to to preserve as much as possible while maintaining relative, let's say, uh, isolation of the the three different cohorts in school, but maintaining as much as possible, preserving as much as possible the ways of working that you guys had. So again, uh, unless uh, uh, other things don't work, uh, I don't expect to have this as a a necessary precaution.
0: Another person asking about underlying symptoms. Uh, We've got uh, uh, a case out there of cystic fibrosis, for example. Is that one showing a high prevalence or a higher concern rate? And if so, what are the mediating factors there that you would consider? So if somebody has cystic fibrosis, and yeah. uh, are they more yeah. susceptible?
1: Well, <laughs> it's a good question. I don't know. Uh, I would have to check. The uh, In general, any, uh, any uh, respiratory disease is probably a bit of an issue, although you know first they were saying asthma and COPD and now they're saying well maybe not really uh, so <clears throat> uh, the uh, and there will be uh, you know some kids with uh, a bit of an immunocompromised uh, situation you know so with a poorer than normal functioning immune system and there we will have to probably find a way to uh, to mitigate the potential risks uh, again, testing, testing, testing. I mean, uh, to, to be honest, yeah. there is no better way because then we can react quickly and maybe we will increase the testing frequency for those kids. Uh, but it's a very good point. I, really, I would put it on my, on my to-do list.
0: Okay. Um, we've got a couple of questions. Okay, so one that's really kind of critical here because we've hinted at it a couple of times. If the Polish government decided not to reopen schools in September, Would we follow that or would we feel like we've got a plan where we could say because we're an isolated, separate community, we could go back to school unless there was a countrywide lockdown of some kind? That's exactly the, you know,
1: that's where I would want to go. Uh, So, uh, and obviously, you know, it's, it's a joint decision, but I think all the precautions that we will take will make the school a safe place, again, barring a major lockdown from the country, barring uh, a situation where you have a major outbreak in Constanci, for example, I don't know.
0: Uh, spread, which was on our crisis matrix to begin with. Which is on,
1: exactly. But again, with an aggressive testing protocol, I would say, I mean, again, your risk of, uh, I mean, you will not get any better staying at home, to be honest. Uh, right. Uh, so, uh, so uh, again, the the uh, objective for us is to create such a place which would be immune from any governmental political decisions. against uh, unless again, it. it's a it's a complete uh, forest uh, lockdown. Yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, again, you, you know, and uh, <clears throat> we will be looking at. Uh, we already have. Uh, we're in discussions with a couple of universities, not schools, but universities in the US on this testing protocol, and uh, there is good uh, reception and uh, a kind of positive outcome, uh, positive uh, <clears throat> feeling about this, because obviously universities are in the same position, a bit; mm-hmm. yep. so, uh, kids are paying huge tuition fees and uh, they're uh, sitting at home. <clears throat> so um, so uh, we are discussing with a couple East Coast uh, universities uh, on this approach, and uh, and
0: it seems that th- this could be a worldwide best practice. And we we just saw a couple of articles within the last couple of days yeah. that were touting it as having that potential, and that's why we're going down that pathway as well. And that's again t- to address the question here about uh, mm-hmm. somebody's referencing Greece and how they're going max five kids in the class and 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 those kinds of things we're actually trying to develop a plan that avoids having to do a hybrid mode that has us coming back as a normal school but with caveats testing as we come in testing at home in terms of question answering and and establishing this this safe bubble Um, and then the testing protocols here at school both before we start school as well as regularly while school is in session Um, and you know all of the other facility upgrades and things that we're doing plus the large cohort isolation and 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 limiting the cross uh, pathways of of our larger cohorts, elementary, middle, and high. Um, but do you see anything on the horizon other than as we said, these worst case circumstances that would have us trying to weave together some kind of hybrid mode with A B shifting and things like that? I just don't see it. But I want I want to hear from you. No, and you know I I don't have this uh, slide
1: here, but <clears throat> there's a nice slide which shows uh, they analyzed a, a mini outbreak in one of uh, the uh, skyscrapers in Seoul in March. You know, and there was one guy who came into the office uh, on the eleventh floor, and uh, he tested positive uh, outside. So then they they locked down the whole building. They tested twelve hundred people. <clears throat> And uh, 97 cases were positive out of the 1,200, okay. of which 89 were on the 11th floor.
0: Okay. Right. Oh, I remember you telling me about this. You remember that?
1: <laughs> and of those 89, 84 were in one section of the floor. Okay, right. I was sitting. OK. So the other section on the same floor, there was only five cases, OK? Uh, and the density was the same. So again, density doesn't matter, to be honest. I mean. If you have uh, if you have an outbreak, you have an army. I mean, you know, if, uh, you know when mm hits the mm, you know. I mean, uh, you cannot prevent this. But uh, and whether you have five kids or six or eight, it doesn't really matter that much, to be honest. Again, you know, with the kid-to-kid transmission today being quite low, uh, and with the aggressive testing protocol, and with you guys also adhering to all the you know new behaviors that uh, that. Uh, Kind of something that we would expect uh, everybody uh, to adhere to. Uh, uh, you know, I, I would say again, there is no there is no there is no benefit of having five kids versus eleven kids or eighteen.
0: Does that, that I'm going to go back to this again because they're asking about children who or family members who are high risk for critical complications. Again, we're addressing that question through the same thing we're saying basically by doing the testing protocol, by doing the behavioral expectations out to the community and really having people adhere to those and report on a a regular basis through um, the various tools that we've got at our fingertips, um, that we reduce the risk for those populations as well. Absolutely, absolutely.
1: And you know, I mean, with all honesty, uh, you know, my parents and my wife's parents are still alive, and we keep them isolated. I mean, we don't visit them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, when my my two boys will now go spend some time with them during the summer holiday, I'm going to test them before they go. Right. Uh, so I mean that that's the new normal, okay. Yeah. And uh, and that's the responsible thing to do because uh, they, you know, they're seventy plus. Uh, uh, Always, some diseases because every 65 year old has at least two chronic diseases in Poland. Uh, so, uh, so again, that's the new norm, and uh, and I and I will feel fine, uh, you know, doing this because then I take all the measures to protect them, and that's exactly what we will be doing here as well. And and hopefully, again, by doing all of this, then it will be easier also for all the parent community to, uh, you know, implement those new behaviors, those new standards at home.
0: Yeah, and it and it also is about talking within your friend circles. Yeah. I, I, I always go back to the question I got sometime in, in May about, hey, our family's been locked down. Yeah. And we know this one other family, we know they've also been locked down. Can our two kids get together? And together advocate, right. And it's like, well, yeah, I had to think about it for a minute, but that's the circle of trust. Cool. If we have that trust and we know that they're adhering to those same standards of behavior. Then, yeah, those kids can get together. And, and that's probably very viable. Absolutely, and, and, you know, in future iterations of, you know, if we went into some type of lockdown, we might think about how that might play out in a virtual setting that also preserves some face-to-face contact. Absolutely. Between smaller circles of friends. Smaller circles of trust. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But that's, that's, that's that's, I think, the, uh, the the best way to manage through this, you know, because, again, we cannot rely on governments because obviously they deal with a lot of stuff and they deal with the population of mass and it's very difficult. Uh, to no. kind of say, so oh, these schools will remain open. These schools will be shut down forever.
0: Do you uh, have an opinion on the face shields, the clear plastic ones that we're seeing everywhere? Uh, there are some reports that they're not as comfortable after a while. Therefore, there's a failure rate. But there's also, you know, do people think that they are better, equal to, less than face masks? I always had the impression they kind of went hand in hand with face masks. Yeah, you know, additive rather than replacement for but what what's your feel on the face mask and yeah i would say
1: i would say i, I so there there's there no data okay there is no data which compares the two in terms of their protection level <laughs> so it's all what i will say is all uh, kind of speculation mm-hmm. uh, but uh, that's exactly right when i look at the and i talk to uh, a lot of uh, Doctors, uh, you know, and healthcare professionals, uh, due to my my background, and I have I have one at home. My wife is a, a, a practicing physician, so when she's, and she's an ophthalmologist, so when she, ophthalmologist, so she has very close contact with her patients. So first right. of all, uh, she requires every patient to wear a face mask, so not the plastic one, but the face mask covering the nose and the mouth, because obviously she also has to access to the eyes of the patient, right. and she's wearing both the face mask and the plastic shield because she needs to protect her eyes as well. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the transmission may be a droplet uh, from mouth to eye as well. <clears throat> so, uh, so, as you said, uh, John, I would say it's uh, an extra level of security. I would not pr- replace uh, a typical surgical mask, which is, by the way, a very good solution. You don't have to go anything more than the surgical mask. Uh, as long as you wear it properly uh, mm-hmm. but i wouldn 't replace it with a with a plastic face shield, to be honest and and again i I come back to my times as a as a practicing physician in the uh, operating room uh, we never had plastic shoes we had just uh, you know, we had surgical mask
0: and that was that was mm-hmm. the standard mm-hmm. that there is a question here about types and kinds of masks uh you know Uh, We, of course, had lots of mask making and various projects uh, that were being done here. Our design center was creating masks using recommended materials, but they were more cotton multi-layer types of masks. Um, You've got, I know that I think the audit is going to recommend type and kind of masks that we should be utilizing for employees. Um, but where do you weigh on the different kinds and types of masks? And, and I guess this is kind of in the throes of CDC about to throw out their new recommendations yeah. on masks. So yeah. it's probably good to ask this question right now.
1: Yeah, let's see what the CDC comes up with. Uh, I mean, again, today you have uh, basically four different kinds of masks. So you have the the, the surgical uh, three-ply masks, uh, which, is, which is also known as FFP1. You have the uh, respirator-type masks, uh, which uh, are usually the FFP2 or FFP3, so the N95 or the N99. And you have the FFP2, FFP3 with no respirator. Mm -hmm. Now, the the most important thing to remember is the masks with the respirator only protect you from others. They do not protect others from you. Got it. So the respirator, the little thing, you know, the plastic thing on the mask, uh, uh, does not let anything in, but lets everything out. Okay, that's how it works. So basically, uh, very useful uh, in situations where you have, where you know you are, say, when we know you're healthy, mm-hmm. okay? and you're, you know, you're interacting with unhealthy people. So it's they're usually used in hospitals by doctors. Okay. So do not use them. Okay, that's good, <laughs> that's good
0: to know. No anything f- else?
1: No valves. <laughs> yeah, no valves. No valves. So anything else is fine, okay. as long as you remember that a surgical mask is uh, uh, can be worn up to four to six hours. Okay. Right. Non-stop, because after after that uh, they are becoming moist and they start falling uh, uh, anyway. Yeah. Uh, the uh, so that's the only thing to remember the other thing to remember is you know the mask also uh, in addition to protecting the uh, the others and you uh, from the droplets it's also the psychological you know protection from uh, touching your face right so don't touch the mask the point is not to touch the face uh, with your hands so if you touch the mask there's obviously, you know, if you're in an environment with a lot of virus, you're touching the virus on the mask. Yeah. Uh, and then when you're uh, taking, b- before you put on the mask, wash your hands. After taking off your mask, throw it to the garbage, wash your hands. That's it.
0: So you're kind of recommending disposable, really focus on yeah, that. That's the what, easiest. What about the, the washable and the reusable and, and some of the other fabrics that are out there? Again,
1: let's see what the CDC comes up with because they... The, the well, original
0: by materials
1: yeah because the original recommendation of to use the regular fabrics I think was driven more by the, the scarcity of uh, right the masks and kind of uh, giving people a solution uh, I, I, the ECDC so the European uh, counter to CDC uh, they do not recommend those cotton masks even the multi-layered ones Uh, and apparently they have some studies i have never seen any studies uh, but uh, i have also never seen any doctor wearing a cotton mask Uh, so you know and for me this is kind of we have to use the same standard as in the hospitals because Mm. we you know if we are to protect ourselves we have to use the same standard And the standard used by doctors, the surgical mask or the N95 mask, the FFP2 mask.
0: Okay, got it. Um, There was a question follow-up on the testing protocol. What what do we mean by aggressive? And I think as you and I talked, it's landing in this weekly range, but it may involve pooling, which does more groups of people together in a single test, which allows us to get faster results and also be able to determine whether there are any groups that have to be retested. And again, uh, reducing this potential for the spread of infection.
1: Yeah, and obviously reducing significantly the costs. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, with, uh, this is a typical method for epidemiological uh, surveys in a low prevalence setting. And we do have a low prevalence situation with COVID. Uh, even, the, you know, even if you multiply the uh, diagnosed by 10 or by 20, you still get below 1 million Uh, So, uh, you know, we are talking in the order of 1% to 3% probably, uh, the -hmm. the true prevalence. And with this type of prevalence, uh, we can use pools of uh, 5 and uh, this provides optimum detection level and uh, optimum uh, economic benefit. Because in the end, you know, we have to bear the two axes, you know, I mean, yes, it would be ideal, like in the White House, to get everybody who is entering the White House every day tested with a PCR test. Uh, they have the money, and uh, it's fine. Still, they will miss. Because right. also <laughs> it's not so, yeah. so again, the point is, let's do things which are practical. Uh, and again, the PCR test, we have to wait 24, 48 hours. Here, if we use the antigen test, uh, we have it you know, within 15, 20 minutes. If we do the pools, then it's even quicker. And with the prevalence that we had, we would we will have to retest very few of the pools individually, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, if any, uh, and sometimes maybe none. So, uh, and then we also this way we also preserve a bit the uh, you know confidentiality of uh, or privacy of the people because you know if a pool tests positive, we actually don't know, and then
0: uh, sometimes people may like to test themselves individually somewhere else, you know. But it also reduces the number of kids that we have to actually exclude from school for yeah. a shorter period of time while they do that retest. And they, while can, they, do they, they, retest. they can do our provider, they can do another provider, yeah, exactly. they go to the embassy, wherever they choose, in order to do that follow up because it was just I was part of that pool. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Brilliant. Um, I, I, there's some questions about, uh, you know, the question about the behavior change in the face of, of comfort <laughs> and, and 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 what that will mean. And, it, and this is both for the outside changes in behavior that we're all experiencing when we're not able to go to this or not able to go to that or not able to gather in large groups. I'm very much aware that there's a large party going on in my compound right now <laughs> that, from my point of view, it's kind of like you were telling about the birthday party invitation, that it's just I can't get my head around going to something like that at this moment. Um, but it's also about the comfort of wearing masks and, and, and the prevalence or the need to do so and, and making that a part of life as much for the psychological purpose as it is for the actual functional purpose. Yeah. Of yeah. and, and there is an importance to it. it. It's kind of a message within a community. We're not only protecting ourselves, we're protecting others That's by cool. doing that, by choosing to do that.
1: That's the point that's the i think that's the key message here is that it's a it's our joint responsibility and yes i mean it is it will be uncomfortable first you know and uh, and uh, i remember you know my first days in the or when i was a young physician you know the first couple of times i almost fainted you know because mm-hmm. you wear the mask and it's hot and it's hot and you get all the adrenaline and then you know it's kind of uh, but but the point is you learn you know and uh, and i know it's a bit more difficult i was reading an interesting article on the psychology of uh, wearing masks and they said that for example in some of the asian countries uh, they don't have an issue with that because uh, uh, they uh, for them the most important part of the face is the expression of the eyes right (laughs) exactly well that's why covering the nose and mouth is not an issue for them Uh, (laughs) And in fact, they like it because it protects their privacy, which is yeah. also an important part of their culture. Well, and, and us, we're
0: very much aware that we're going to have all these cultural dimensions. I mean, we've yeah, got 50 yeah, plus exactly. nationalities represented. Yeah, yeah exactly. So exactly. that's going to be a piece of our puzzle as well. And it will be
1: a piece of your puzzle as well. And, you know, and if at some stage we will have to decide that kids will have to wear masks, then we have to find a way. You know? I hope not. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, uh, and we will do everything possible, because again, I think it's very impractical And I see this, these pictures of the kids in some of the Asian countries wearing, but again, for them, it's, uh, it's not a new norm. For them, it's kind of, okay, it's like uh, norm, norm, you know, wearing a mask.
0: I've been, my, I have family in South China. So I'm very much aware of that. You, are, yeah. the, you know, the mask wearing for my little four year old nephews was pretty much a foregone conclusion. Yeah, yeah. They, they now put them on themselves and know that, you know, we're going to go outside. So masks, yeah. masks in place. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, Dr. Oleshock, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, We've uh, had a full hour. We peaked out at about 60 participants at different points in time. We are going to uh, share this uh, on my podcast tomorrow. So any parents um, that weren't able to make it tonight, they'll have an opportunity to view it. Any final comments from you before I give some final instructions to our parents online? No, uh, and thank you for the
1: invitation and thank you for the opportunity to work with you and uh, it is an absolute pleasure and a great challenge you know an intellectual challenge to be serving such a complex environment right Uh, and an environment where i also feel quite emotional about uh, having uh, again uh, kids of various school ages uh, from you know nursery to high school at home Uh, so uh, so thank you for this opportunity and again I, i i want to leave you guys with the message that you know, COVID is there, it's uh, it's still there. The pandemic continues. Uh, and uh, there are ways to limit the spread. It's all our joint responsibility. It's not just about me and me and me. Uh, it's about all of us. Uh, because whatever happens outside will eventually impact us. The less risk we project, the less risk we will get, the less risk that the school will be closed. And again, finally, my, may, my main aim for uh, everything that we're doing with the american school is to make sure that that the school remains open at all
0: times throughout the next year that's wonderful thank you sir and thank Thank you you so much for your time thank you parents online i just want to point out that on facebook i'm attempting to use the new question methodology and so i just threw one up on your screen it says what things that you heard tonight were most encouraging. And I'm gonna throw uh, a poll question up as well. And if you take a moment and just type in a quick response or answer to that, or throw it into the chat if you wanna add any additional comments after we get done here tonight, I'd really appreciate it. Um, Let me throw the poll question up as well. And there you go. And this is just a quick vote, if you will, to see how we're doing Um, on this process so far. And of course you're always welcome parents and everyone to shoot an email to me uh, with your questions, with your comments, with your insights and with your feedback as we continue to work on our pathway towards developing this plan and getting ready for uh, the opening of school on August 18th. So thank you very much for all of you joining us tonight. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Olashuk for joining us and for being our special guest. Have a wonderful evening and we'll look forward to seeing you again on our next town hall, which I believe is scheduled for July 8th. So uh, go ahead and check. Uh, These are all logged in the parent Facebook group and you can mark your calendar so you can come back and join us. And a special shout out, I think amongst our crew tonight, we probably have some of our newest parents. Uh, We added our new parents to our mailing group and I did note that some of them were able to join us tonight. Welcome. It's so glad to have you all on board and have you part, of our community. Uh, You'll really enjoy being warriors, and we're very glad that you're here. All right, that's it for me, and that's it for Zimplicity tonight, and now I'm going to drop the theme music and take us out.